It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Some breaking Tiger news here to start off the podcast. Tiger Woods, in an exclusive interview with Golf Digest, says he's done playing professional golf full time. In this interview, you've got to recall that Tiger Woods was in that horrendous car accident, lucky to be alive. And he now says he'll pick a few events a year and play around that, gear himself up for that court. I think that's how I'm going to have to play it from now on. It's an unfortunate reality, but it's my reality, and I understand it, and I accept it. He goes on to say, I didn't have to compete and play against the best players in the world to have a great life. After my back fusion, that was one of his surgeries, I had to climb Mount Everest one more time. I had to do it, and I did it. This time around, I don't think I'll have the body to climb Mount Everest, and that's okay. By the way, the whole Matthew McConaughey hype business that he was going to run for governor of Texas, I never took it that seriously, and now he's not running. It just amazes me the way uh, so many of my colleagues in the media, I mean, I get it, it's clickbait, you know, famous actor or celebrity or entertainer, you know, one out of... 500 times somebody in the business runs. Ronald Reagan might have been an example of that, and there were a few others. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But, you know, it's a way for them to get publicity. Now, I'm not saying he was a complete fraud and he was never going to run, but, you know, they kind of get enticed by, well, you know, I'm a pretty popular guy. I don't like Greg Abbott. I'll run and I'll be the next governor of Texas. And then they have to take a hard look at fundraising, what is my position on 10,000 issues that I never had to think about. For example, he decided not to run after he got a lot of attention for saying uh, he he wouldn't mandate vaccines for young children. We have to go slow on vaccines. Um, And so I guess that leaves Beto O'Rourke as the only uh, declared candidate. Maybe there are other Democrats who want to challenge Abbott in Texas. But uh, it does seem to me that celebrities reap a whole lot of publicity and headlines by pretending or flirting with the idea of running farmers, and they don't do it. All right, lots to get to here. So story number one, Chris Cuomo in much deeper trouble than he has been before over his efforts to help his brother Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York. You know, I was home when this broke late yesterday, came racing into the office and bang out a story for special report, went on the air with it. And there is a lot here, a lot to unpack. Now, since uh, my story aired last night, CNN has put out this pretty lame, rather tepid statement saying, well, these facts deserve a thorough review and consideration. We will be having conversations and seeking additional clarity. CNN seems so determined not to say anything that might in any way upset Andrew Cuomo. You might recall them when some of this came out during the investigation of the former governor some months ago. Uh, CNN, despite a whole lot of criticism, took no disciplinary action against Andrew Cuomo. Uh, who finally went on his show, this was in August, and apologized and said he realized he had gone too far and he was, uh, uh, had embarrassed CNN by joining strategy calls with his brother, the Democratic governor of New York, uh, and, and his staff, the brother's staff, uh, in trying to figure out how to deal with the mounting sexual harassment allegations. Well, now, a whole bunch of new documents have come out from the state attorney general's investigation. CNN didn't really have any choice but to say something. Uh, Had no comment when I uh, tried to uh, see if there was any reaction or any statement. Because of the nature here, uh, the magnitude of Chris Cuomo's deep involvement 
in helping to orchestrate Andrew's defense, including, by the way, calling other journalists to find out about the accusers. Um, this is pretty serious stuff. Uh, there's a whole bunch of texts between Chris Cuomo. Remember, he's the CNN primetime host at this point, And the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, as they are doing damage control. Chris Cuomo texting, please let me help with the prep. And um, accusing her of withholding information from his brother. Stop hiding S, he writes. Uh, but the most important thing he is here is that when Chris Cuomo went on the air, he said, I never spoke to the press about my brother's situation. And that is flatly contradicted by this new evidence. It's simply not true. Uh, for example, um, he told the governor's chief of staff, Melissa DeRosa, about a rumor that Politico would report on one or two more accusers. You know, remember they were sort of coming out of the woodwork. She asked him to check his sources. He reported back in about 40 minutes that no one else had heard that. Uh, Cuomo told investigators, I would reach out to sources, other journalists, to see if they had heard of anybody else coming out. Now, when it came to Ronan Farrow, investigative reporter who uh, helped expose uh, Harvey Weinstein and has done a whole lot of work on sexual harassment, uh, he was preparing a story, everybody knew this, that was going to come out in The New Yorker. Obviously, the Andrew Cuomo camp wanted to know when was it coming out, what was in it. So Cuomo, again texting uh, DeRosa, says, story not ready for tomorrow. He had spoke with a journalist friend of Farrow's, and there was another journalist. Um, and then it turned out that Farrow was focusing on one particular accuser, Lindsay Boylan. This was a woman who, among other things, alleged that Governor Cuomo had kissed her in his office, had asked her uh, if she would play strip poker. This is something that Andrew Cuomo has denied. So Chris Cuomo texts and says the following. If Ronan has nothing better than Boylan, that's a great sign. And he later talked to his brother about the New Yorker piece. So it goes on and on and on. I think I have a lead on the wedding girl. I mean, you remember there were, uh, I believe, 11 total women who came forward with various levels of accusation against the governor, uh, saying either that he had touched them, uh, groped them, uh, harassed them, asked them uncomfortable questions about their sex life, uh, in various ways, either physical or non-physical, Obviously, these women were made to feel uncomfortable. And obviously, as a result of that investigation, Andrew Cuomo uh, had very little choice but to resign. In fact, Chris Cuomo had advised his brother to resign. So, look, I've known Chris Cuomo for a long time. And I have some sympathy or I had some sympathy because, you know, it's his brother and it's a very close-knit family. And, of course, privately, he's going to advise his brother about what to do. I get that. When you start, when you when you have a show at CNN and you start um, making calls to other journalists, you're kind of using your street cred as a cable news host to find out, to play defense about these accusations so you can advise your brother on how he can defend against them so he can keep his job. When you do those things and when you're constantly texting with his people, uh, and he even edited a, a statement that uh, Andrew Cuomo ultimately put out, saying, well, don't include this part. I mean, he was part of the defense team. There's just no other way to put it. And that crosses so many lines. Uh, so, again, you know, I understand he was kind of in a box. CNN at one point had suggested he take a leave of absence. 
and go help his brother. But he chose not to do that. And of course, CNN bears a lot of responsibility here because this goes back to last year in the beginning of the pandemic when Andrew Cuomo was kind of a folk hero for the daily briefings he held. And CNN suspended its previous rule about no Cuomo on Cuomo television and allowed Chris Cuomo to interview Governor Cuomo 11 different times. And, you know, there was the, they would joke around and mom told me I had to do it and Chris would bring out that oversized Q-tip and all of that. But then when Andrew Cuomo got into trouble when suddenly he's enmeshed in this scandal, oh, no, 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 you can't talk to him. That would, that would that's be a conflict. You can't do that. So I think CNN bears a lot of the responsibility here. And now CNN has to decide what to do. I mean, this is, this is documented. This is Chris Cuomo's own words, his own texts, his own testimony. Uh, and I don't think it can just be swept under the rug. Now, I don't take it upon myself to say CNN should do this or Chris should do that, but it is a real major league dilemma. And I don't think it goes too far to say that if any other journalist at CNN or elsewhere had done this had, on this level of magnitude, that person would be gone. But the problem for CNN is Chris Cuomo is its most visible figure, its biggest name, and has the highest rating show. So CNN, I think, not quite sure what to do. To give you a sense of the political trouble he's in, here's a piece from the liberal Atlantic magazine. The Atlantic saying, this is not, you know, you, you would expect right-wingers, brother of a Democratic governor, to pile on Chris Cuomo. Here's the Atlantic saying, the fallout from Andrew Cuomo's departure has made Chris Cuomo's position untenable. He should resign. If he doesn't, CNN should sack him. This is not my words. This is the Atlantic's words. His, the new revelations demonstrate more serious errors of judgment. When Chris Cuomo simply offered advice to staff members, he failed to observe the rules CNN had set for his private behavior. But by gathering information from sources and passing it on to his brother's staff, Cuomo committed the more egregious step of directly mixing the journalistic work of calling sources and gathering information with his personal familial commitments. CNN bears some of the blame, as I said earlier, uh, by keeping Cuomo on the air and in his job, says The Atlantic. CNN would send the message that journalistic ethics are only for the little people and viewers are on their own. All right, number two, uh, Omicron uh, obviously is become a major news story. It's not that the situation is not that much different than when I said on the podcast yesterday. This could turn out to be an absolute deadly variant of the coronavirus or it could turn out to be not that serious. We still don't know. Uh, but the New York Times has a little bit of a TikTok say that by the time that President Biden was briefed on this new variant, the morning after Thanksgiving, so that's last Friday morning, he had a choice to make and little information to base it on. They did a secure conference call from the uh, compound, this billionaire's uh, estate in Nantucket, uh, where the president was spending the Thanksgiving holiday. The president listened as his health advisors told me the highly mutated virus was far more concerning than other variants, spread twice as fast as the Delta variant, and had the potential to you know, be resistant to vaccines and treatments. I didn't know about the spreading twice as fast part. Uh, so what they told him was, look, Mr. President, banning travel from these southern African countries where the virus was discovered last week will not stop the virus from finding its way to the U.S. It's going to get here. I mean, we've all been through these global surges, and we know how it works. 
but banning travel might slow the spread. And so Anthony Fauci is getting a whole lot of abuse right now from uh, conservative critics. Uh, he and others acknowledged how little they knew about this Omicron, Omicron, but um, they concluded there would be, at least they would buy time. The potentially marginal benefit from the travel ban was worth the criticism it would generate from the affected countries. And people in South African countries are not happy about this. Better to be criticized for something you do rather than something you don't do a few hours later. Biden went out to the uh, Nantucket Tap Room for lunch with his family. White House issued a statement, and he took a few questions from reporters, banning travel from those African countries. And when he uh, spoke about it um, on Monday at the White House, Biden said, here's what it does. It gives us time. It gives us time to take more actions to move quicker. Uh, this is when he said that this uh, Omicron is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. Uh, and I still don't know, and none of us know, none of us in the news business know, the White House doesn't know, nobody knows how bad this could be. Is this twice as deadly and twice as transmissible as Delta? Well, we'll find out. Story number three, you know, this whole contretemps involving Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, uh, from Colorado, has just degenerated into an absolute awful mess. That would be the technical term. So this all started, and this is a woman who, you know, she's a freshman member of Congress and uh, certain similarities to Marjorie Taylor Greene in that she says some pretty inflammatory things. And the latest inflammatory thing was her going after a fellow member of Congress, um, Congresswoman Omar, a Muslim who wears a hijab, and suggesting that Ilhan Omar could be a suicide bomber and bragging to constituents about confronting Omar on an elevator with what you'd have to call an Islamophobic epithet. That's what the New York Times calls it anyway. You know, talking about being part of the jihad squad, not just the squad. So, look, I got to say right here, Omar has also said inflammatory things, things that members of her party considered to be anti-Semitic. So I, it's not like I think that she should be exempt from criticism. But, you know, for one member of Congress to use that kind of language, suggest that she's a terrorist or a terrorist supporter, against number member of Congress obviously is way, way, way over the line. And Omar realized that. So she put out one of these apologies saying, she didn't apologize to her directly, but she put out one of these apologies saying, uh, I want to apologize to anybody who was offended by what I said, and asking to speak to Omar. So yesterday they had a phone call, and it was supposed to be an apology phone call. Uh, it didn't work out so well. Um, the two different accounts, you know, they each talked about the call, don't differ very much. Omar ended up pretty abruptly hanging up on Lauren Boebert. Both came away pissed off. Omar said the, uh, the apology was, you know, just ridiculously inadequate. And Boebert said she is a victim. She's the victim here of a hypersensitive political culture. Uh, here's a statement from Ilhan Omar. Instead of apologizing for her Islamophobic comments and fabricated lies, Representative Boebert refused to publicly acknowledge her hurtful and dangerous comments. I, she instead doubled down on her rhetoric, and I decided to end the unproductive call. Uh, Boebert 
says she called to tell Omar that she was a strong Christian woman and that she had erred when she attacked Omar about her Muslim faith, uh, you think? Um, this is according to Bobert's press secretary. Uh, she said that she should not have called her a member of the Jihad Squad, should not have said, oh, well, you weren't wearing a backpack, you know, implication being maybe she was a suicide bomber. But Omar wanted her to publicly apologize. Go public. Uh, and here is more f from Bobert in a video on Instagram. I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. She continued to press, and I continued to press back. So nobody looks good here. You know what, if, you're gonna, if you say something and you have to publicly kind of sort of apologize and you re reach out for a call, you have to be conciliatory. You can't just continue to attack the person. Otherwise, what's the point of the call? Um, we'll see if the Democrats, you know, who, who recently um, took disciplinary action against another Republican member of Congress, do anything further on this. But, you know, there's a real reason that Congress has a really, really low approval rating. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, let's move on to number four. Jack Dorsey, out as Twitter CEO. And he did it in his very sort of Jack Dorsey-like way, posting uh, on Twitter, not sure anyone has heard, but I resigned from Twitter. And he ended it with, hi, Mom. Uh, so for 15 years, you know, Jack Dorsey really was Twitter. He helped found Twitter. And he hasn't been the CEO for that whole time. But he was, has been just this iconic figure in Silicon Valley. Uh, he was the first of the big tech CEOs to... Um, kicked Donald Trump off his platform, you know, followed by Facebook and others. Um, he also, at times, has been candid about Twitter's many problems. 2018, Dorsey said that Twitter was broken in fundamental ways, and he asked outsiders to help figure out how to prioritize the collective health of the platform, according to this Washington Post write-up. Back in March, he appeared before Congress, sporting a very scruffy beard and a nose ring, and he irked lawmakers by tweeting during the hearing. Well, look, he can dress and use whatever jewelry he wants. Um, but the problem, the thing is, Dorsey didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what, uh, I'm tired of doing this. He had earned, he drew a lot of criticism. He had a reputation as a chaotic and distant manager. Wall Street didn't like the things that he was doing. Sometimes his own employees were befuddled by what he was doing. Uh, before the pandemic, he announced in a late night email that everybody could work from home forever without bothering to tell his own head of HR. Um, he floated plans that he would just move to Africa during the pandemic. Um, and he has been under pressure to leave the job. Investors have been pushing for his ouster, saying, look, he's doing too many things. He's also the CEO of Square, the payments company. And look, this has got to hurt. He announces his recognition yesterday, and Twitter's stock price soared. That's the market saying, hey, we're glad. That Jack is out, at Jack, as he is known on Twitter, except that the, the stock price came down and actually ended the day down slightly. So he not only quits, he quits immediately, effective immediately. He'll be replaced by his chief technology officer, a guy named Parag Agrawal, an engineer who kind of worked his way through the ranks. And Dorsey said, look, ultimately I believe it's severely limiting and a single point of failure for the founders of a tech company to 
just be running it forever. I've worked hard to ensure this company can break away from its founding and founders, which a lot of people are saying kind of a jab at Mark Zuckerberg, who was, of course, the founder of Facebook and continues to be the CEO and has given no indication that he plans to leave. Okay, <laughs> Twitter's former head of communications tweeted the resignation and encouraged Dorsey to creep to keep trolling Zuck. <laughs> well, that's kind of funny. Anyway, I don't know. I kind of, I didn't agree. I mean, you know, Twitter has all kinds of problems. It has become a cesspool for hate. The fact that you don't have to use your own name. Um, questions of conservative bias. Exemplified, I think, by the ban on Trump, which if you could, ever could justify it, you would do it while he was president after January 6th. How do you justify it now in 2021? Um, and, you know, the shadow banning and all of that. So it's not like I'm a big Dorsey fan, but I, I do think he was a, sort of this colorful guy who at times was very candid about the problems of his company. And I think this new guy, Agrawal, will make a whole lot less news. But maybe we'll be more professional in running the place. Twitter's got to find a way to make some money. I mean, Twitter is a huge force for good and also for not so good in the media marketplace because so many journalists are on Twitter, including me, and that's how we market our stories. And there's this whole conversation that goes on, certainly people on the right, people on the left, people in the middle. That's um, really important that I think you know, when stories trend on Twitter, then people on cable news say, hey, this must be hot, and they do it. And sometimes they're kind of crappy stories or clickbait stories. Sometimes they're really important stories. All right, I'm going to move on to number five, and that is a whole lot of trials going on. And I don't even know if I can get to them all. There's so many trials going on. Now, none of these are getting quite the attention, so far at least, uh, of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. But, of course, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial had cameras in the courtroom. And it just makes a huge difference. It makes it more of a television story. You can see the emotional testimony of witnesses and so forth. One of the trials that has been going on for some weeks now, and by the way, I've just got to, as somebody who's gone to courthouses and covered trials uh, in my career as a reporter, they tend to be really tedious, you know, punctuated by moments of high drama. And what you might hear about on the news or see if there were cameras in the courtroom, you know, the dramatic moment of cross-examination, but most of it is like expert witnesses droning on about uh, legal standards and evidentiary questions and that sort of thing. So. The Theranos trial, the former chief executive Elizabeth Holmes, who was so lauded and made into this tech cover girl. She was the next Steve Jobs, uh, except that the company that she founded, which was supposed to have the simple little finger prick blood test, essentially turned out to be a house of cards. Didn't have new technology. There were all kinds of lies that were told. And now she's blaming the boyfriend. And we knew that this might come. So here's a Washington Post write-up. Elizabeth Holmes testifying that her former romantic and business partner, a guy named Sonny Balwani, wanted to kill the person that she was to make her into a new Elizabeth. Well, hell, you were the CEO of the company. You had something to say about that. Um, there were descriptions of his alleged sexual assault and controlling behavior. And this is something that the Holmes defense team has been hinting at, and now yesterday they actually went there. Now, Elizabeth Holmes didn't say that Balwani uh, forced her to say certain allegedly misleading things 
or didn't control her interactions with the board of directors or business partners, but she said he had a whole lot of influence. He impacted everything about who I was, said Holmes, and I don't fully understand that. Well, I don't fully understand how this is a viable defense. You know, you're a smart woman, you became a billionaire, you founded a company, and yeah, you were put this guy in a high position, and you had a romantic relationship with him, and now you're going to push it off on him. She became teary-eyed on the stand as she described uh, dropping out of Stanford, in part because she had been raped. Shortly after, she struck up a relationship with Balwani, who would go on to become a top Theranos executive. Quote, he said that I was safe now that I had met him. She was 18. He's about 20 years older. Malwani had a specific idea about how to make her into a good entrepreneur. Uh, he told her she only had to eat certain foods that would make her pure and give her energy for the company, not sleep much, and have a very disciplined and intense lifestyle. Okay, again, you have free will. You don't got to do what the boyfriend says. When she failed to live up to his expectations, Elizabeth Holmes testified. Balwani would yell at her and sometimes force her to have sex with him when she didn't want to because, quote, he wanted to, he would say to me, he wanted me to know that he still loved me. Uh, and then we get into testimony about you know, using third-party machines that she didn't tell investors and outside partners to do these blood tests. So um, we'll see whether this gambit works. Meanwhile, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial got underway in New York yesterday. This is more than two years after her one-time boyfriend and longtime business partner, Jeffrey Epstein, was found dead in a jail cell. She went on trial in Manhattan, accused of helping to recruit, groom, and abuse young girls. So uh, the federal prosecutor in the opening statement said that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were partners in crime that Maxwell uh, sexually exploited young girls by developing their trust, helping to normalize abusive sexual conduct, and then serve them up to Jeffrey in a decade-long scheme. The defendant and Epstein made young girls believe their dreams could come true, said Laura Pomerantz, the federal prosecutor. They made them feel special, but that was a cover. Behind closed doors, the defendant and Epstein were committing heinous crimes. They were sexually abusing teenage girls. Now, um, Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyer also got to speak in her defense, and she said that, hey, my client is being made a scapegoat for Epstein's actions. Ever since Eve was tempting Adam with the apple, women have been blamed for the bad behavior of men. And she went on to say that, you know, Epstein's not around, he committed suicide, so now she's going to, you know, in effect, take the fall for him. Well, we'll see what kind of evidence the trial is presented at trial. Uh, this, I think, is going to get a lot of attention. I mean, remember how this, the Epstein case has gripped the world, particularly because of his high-level connections. He was friendly at one time with Bill Clinton. He was friendly at one time with Donald Trump. There's the whole Prince Andrew connection. People went to his parties. I mean, it is too bad that he's not around to be tried, uh, that he was jailed and was able to um, end his own life. Uh, but that doesn't give me any sympathy for Ghislaine Maxwell. She clearly was his enabler. Now, whether that behavior rises to the level of a criminal conviction is why we have trials. And that's what I said about Kyle Rittenhouse. Not a hero, 
Shouldn't have gone to Kenosha with an AR-15, shot three people, two of them fatally, but, but there was evidence at the trial that he acted in self-defense and the jury unanimously acquitted him, even though some people don't accept that verdict. And also going on at the same time is the Jesse Smollett trial. Remember this guy? Actor who uh, conducted what can only be described as a hoax um, going on trial in Chicago. He was, had been the star of this TV show, Empire. And he is being accused of staging, of staging, of orchestrating, of fabricating a racist and anti-gay hate crime against himself. Is that really just three years ago? It seems like about 10 years ago. So the stakes are not that high for Smollett personally, if you leave aside the fact that his reputation has been ruined. Uh, he faces six low-level disorderly conduct charges. If found guilty, he could be sentenced up to three years behind bars. Well, that's not nothing, folks but also could receive probation and community service. He's pleaded guilty. He's called this a dog and pony show. So Smollett's lawyers and the prosecution agree that just after 2 a.m. on this morning in 2019, Smollett was attacked by two brothers, both of whom had worked as stand-ins or extras on Empire. So he knew them. But while the special prosecutor, former attorney Dan Webb, former U.S. attorney, I should say, provided a detailed account to the jury of how and why Jesse Smollett orchestrated this attack against him, Smollett's attorney said, oh, he wasn't involved in planning the attack at all. At all, there was a real crime that occurred against Jesse. Jesse Smollett is a real victim. The brothers did not like him. Um, I don't have all the details here, but wasn't there evidence that they were paid to do this? Uh, it all started when Jesse Smollett received a letter uh, with re threatening racist and homophobic messages. So he felt that uh, the TV show wasn't doing enough to defend him. But that is no justification for what apparently happened, what all kinds of media reporting says happened, and what the prosecution says happened, which was this whole thing was staged. It all fell apart. Uh, I don't fully understand why Justice Smollett wanted to go to trial. He could have pled to some minor charges and maybe got away with probation or a short sentence. Uh, now this is all going to be aired again, reminding people who have completely forgotten about this. But um, such is the world we live in. It's almost like a three-ring entertainment here with these three different high-profile trials going on at the same time. Uh, we'll try to keep up with all of them. Uh, each in its own way, I think, is a really important story. Well, I appreciate, as always, you listening. I'll just take a moment to say that uh, it'd be nice if you would subscribe to our podcast if you're not already getting it automatically. You can get it on your Amazon device. You can get it at Google Podcasts. You can get it at Apple iTunes. You can also leave us a comment there. And I will be back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.